Thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, so far in the book of Acts, we've seen God do some great and amazing things. It started with him filling his followers there on the day of in the upper room with the Holy Spirit. And then he empowers Peter with boldness to preach the first sermon, to preach the first gospel message. And uh, we see 3,000 people as a result of that get saved. And then once again, God empowers Peter to heal that lame man. And, And because of that, this huge crowd comes to where Peter and John are. And once again, God gives Peter that boldness to proclaim the gospel message again. And, and Luke tells us now there are 5,000 men who are saved, and you add women and children, and you're more like uh, 15 to 20,000 believers. And so God has done this great work to establish the early church in really just a matter of days. And this morning, as we continue through the book of Acts, we're going to see five more great things that God does within the early church. Five great things that you know we should desire that he would be doing in us as a church as well. And as we look at these five great things that God does in the early church, we're also going to know another important thing. We're going to look at another important thing, and that is the work of Satan. You see, whenever God does something great in your life or great through your life or great in a group of believers like us, Satan is always wanting to come along and try to destroy the work that God has done. When God does something great, Satan wants to destroy that great work. You see, Satan basically has two main goals. His first goal is to keep as many people as possible from accepting Christ. He wants as many people as possible to stay lost in darkness, to stay ultimately bound to him. But his second main goal is to keep people who have accepted Christ, who have ultimately, he's lost, they've come to know Jesus. Well, now he wants to keep them ineffective for Jesus. He does everything he can to keep you from growing in Christ, to keep you from living for Christ, to keep you from telling other people about Christ. And so if he loses you, you accept Christ, he then wants to do everything he can to hinder your relationship with with Christ. And that's exactly what we see here in Acts chapter 4. God did this great work through Peter. The gospel has been proclaimed. All these people are getting saved. This man has been healed. And now we see, as we noted last week, Satan on the attack. The great work of God transpires, and now Satan wants to try to destroy that work. He wants to try to hinder those that God is using to do that work. And so Satan uses the religious leaders. They come and they arrest Peter and John. And they put him on trial. And they severely threaten Peter and John to never speak about or teach about Jesus ever again. Satan uses the religious leaders to try to stop Peter and John. But Peter and John respond by saying, hey, whether it's right to obey you or God, you judge. But we're going to obey God. We're going to continue to preach about Jesus, to live for Jesus. And so Satan's attack, it didn't work. And Peter and John are let go, and they go to the other believers, and they tell them what happened, and they tell them about these severe threats. And all the believers start to pray for boldness, and the Holy Spirit gives them boldness to speak the word of God. And so Satan's first attempt to destroy the early church by attacking its leaders, it failed. He tried. It didn't work. 
And so now I want you to note that the method that Satan used to destroy the Uh, destroy the early church was he tried to destroy it from the outside. He used persecution from the outside, the religious leaders from the outside to try to stop the leaders, to try to work in the church. And and now he's going to, you know, do something different because something important to understand about Satan is when he fails, he doesn't give up. Yeah, that'd be nice. You know, he comes and he attacks you, you, you overcome it. And he says, all right, well, forget this one. I'll move on to someone else. That's not how he works. You know, when he attacks you and it doesn't work, then he'll just try a new method. You know, the Bible gives us several descriptions of Satan, and, and I want us to note four of them because these four descriptions really help us to see different ways in which he attacks against us. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we're told, The adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 2 Corinthians eleven three, The serpent deceived Eve uh, by his craftiness. John eight forty four. You are of your father, the devil, who does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Second Corinthians eleven fourteen. for Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. So in these verses, we see four different uh, descriptions of Satan. First, that he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Second, that he's a deceiving serpent. Third, that he's the father of lies. And fourth, that he can ultimately make himself look like an angel of light. And I bring that up because when when Satan attacks like a roaring lion and he's not successful in that attack, he'll just change his method. He'll come at you like a deceiving serpent. He'll come at you as a father of lies. He'll come at you as an angel of light trying to make himself look something good, but really obviously is something evil. This morning we're going to see Satan attack like a deceiving serpent. He tried like a roaring lion. He tried to produce fear in the the leaders of the church, and that didn't work. And so now he's going to try a new method. He tried the first time, try to work from the outside, persecuting. Now this new method is going to try from the inside, impacting believers in the church. And so this morning we're going to see two different types of works that were happening in the early church. The great works that God was doing, but also with that, the evil, deceptive, destructive works that Satan tried to do because of the great work that God was doing. And I want us to recognize nothing's changed. God is still doing great work in the church today, and Satan is still trying to destroy that great work. And so what we're going to be looking at this morning, I think, is very applicable, and there's a lot of things that we can learn and apply to our lives. And so we're going to start here. Luke starts sharing some of the great things that God was doing in the early church that Satan was getting so upset about. We left off on chapter 4, verse 32, says this. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that anything, any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. As I mentioned at the beginning, in the verses that we're going to look at this morning, Luke's going to share with us five great things that God was doing in the early church. And here we see the first great thing that God was doing in verse uh, 32. Now, the multitude of those who believe were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of his things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. The first great thing that God was doing in the early church was he was producing this great unity among the believers. They had this great unity because they were unified around 
Jesus. And this is something that is so important for us to not lose sight of. Jesus was what they had in common. Jesus was the reason that that unity existed. They were one heart and they were one soul because of their relationship with Jesus and they had Jesus in common. You see, something important to understand as Christians is our unity is in Jesus And because of that, we don't have to try to manufacture or or try to discover some other unity. And and oftentimes we do that. What do we have in common so we can kind of unify together? And we look at, you know, the things that we have in common like sports and other things. And, oh, that will really connect us. Or, you know, the likes that we have or the hobbies that we have, that will really unify us. Well, really, the thing that unifies us is Jesus. Who cares about all the other things? That is the true unifying work in in the church because that is what we have in common and that should be ultimately the most important thing to us. So when we keep our focus on Jesus, when we put him at the center of our relationships, the natural result is unity. When we abandon that, the natural result is disunity. A.W. Tozer, a great commentator, a great pastor, he said this, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one chord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So if 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, they would be in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. I love what he says here because I think in the church world today we're trying to become unity conscious and see how can we unify in all these other things and we're losing sight of the thing that brings us together which is Jesus. If we will stay focused on him and centered on him we will have unity. When we lose sight of him it brings disunity and when we start looking for all these other things to bring us back together we've missed the point. The thing that brings us together as a church that gives us true godly unity is Jesus. Let's keep him the focus and the center of our relationships and unity will naturally happen. So the early church, they had this great unity because they were unified around Jesus, and that should be something that we seek to unify ourselves around as well. So this is the first great thing that we see God doing here. He's he's bringing great unity to the church. The second great thing that we see God doing is in verse 33, and he says, And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So the second great thing that God was doing in the early church is he brought this great power to the people who were there. God was pouring out his supernatural power on the apostles. And notice the reason why. To help them give witness of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this is something that we clearly saw as God empowered Peter to heal that lame man. Well, what was the result of that as this lame man was healed? It wasn't just that that lame man went from being lame to healed. It was something far greater than that. It drew this huge crowd that gave Peter an opportunity to do what? To ultimately share and witness of Jesus Christ. He's no longer dead. He's alive. He's still working in people's lives. He's the one who healed this man. And so this power was not just to heal people. This power was ultimately to witness for God, and that's exactly what transpires with Peter, and it's such an encouraging thing that we see with him. And so God brought this great unity. He also brought this great power. The third thing that God brought is also in verse 33. It says, and great grace was upon them all. So the third thing that God brought to the early church was great grace. 
As we've noted many times, grace is that unearned, undeserved favor from God, and he had poured it out upon the early church. You know, a continual dosage of God's grace is something that we are in desperate need of as individuals, and we're in desperate need of as a church as a whole. We need to experience the unearned, undeserved favor of God. And one of the reasons that's so important for us is so that we will then turn around and offer grace to others, that we will treat one another with grace, that it's not, well, you don't deserve that, so I'm not going to do that for you. Well, you haven't earned that, so I'm not going to do that for you. Well, if we will demonstrate grace, it doesn't matter if they're deserving. It doesn't matter if they're earned it. We can still show them the love. We can still treat them the way that God treats us with this great grace. And this is something that we see here in the early church. They receive the grace of God, but they are also demonstrating the grace of God toward one another. And we see one of the ways in which they demonstrated this grace in the fourth great thing that God was doing in them, which is seen in verses 34 through 37. Notice what was happening. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of land or houses sold them. And brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distribute to each one as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now notice what we're told here. We're told that no one among the early church of all these believers, 15 to 20,000 now, lacked anything that they needed. And notice the reason why. The reason why they didn't lack anything is because people who were there were selling their properties and taking the money that they got from that and giving it to the disciples to meet the needs that were present in the early church. So the fourth thing that God brought to the early church was great giving. You know, what we see here with this giving is quite amazing, and I want us to note a few things about it. First of all, the need was great which required everyone to give the way that they did. You see, there was probably about 20,000 believers there now in Jerusalem. And I want you to realize that many of them weren't from Jerusalem. Many of them weren't even from Israel. If you remember in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, Luke tells us that there were people from 15 different countries that came there on the day of Pentecost. And as the Spirit comes and moves, they're speaking in tongues. And what are these people here? They hear the praising of God in their own language. So they came from a different country to ultimately celebrate the Feast of uh, Pentecost. They were Jews from different places, but their home's not in Jerusalem. Their home's in some other country, and they've come, and this great work of God has transpired. Now, because of this, it presents a very practical problem. Let me give you an example with us that would hopefully help you get this. Let's say that all of us went to Israel for a 10-day trip. We just want to see, you know, the sights and go there. And as we're there, something transpires that's just so amazing that we all want to stay. Now, we would have some practical problems. We don't have a job there. We don't have a house there. We don't have anything there. All of our stuff is here in Houston. But we're there, and we want to stay there. The work of God is happening there, and so, you know, we got a problem. We need other people who do live there to help us out because we don't have jobs, because we don't have an income, because we don't have a place to stay. And that's the situation that many of these probably 20,000 believers find themselves in. There were probably thousands of them who weren't from Jerusalem, weren't from Israel for that matter, and so they don't have a home there, they don't have a job there, they don't have ability to support themselves, and so now there's a need, a big need that's just immediately transpiring that the people who do live in Jerusalem are seeking to meet. 
And the way that they meet that need is they start selling their properties. And they take the money that they get and they give it to the apostles and they elders say, here, use this to help meet the needs that we're seeing with the people here. So the first thing I want you to note is the need was great, which required the people to give in this great way. Now, it's also important to note that this passage is not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that Christians should go sell all that they have and give it to their pastor. And I say that because there are pastors who teach that and they use this text. They say, see, it's biblical. You need to sell all that you have and put it at my feet and then I will be able to distribute it as I choose. And that's not what the Bible is teaching. And guys who teach that are just charlatans trying to get your money. But um, this passage is suggesting that, you know, when you're faced with great needs, we as Christians in the body of Christ should be willing to give, should be willing to look at that need and say, how can we help meet the needs of others, especially other believers? The second thing I want you to note about this giving, it was voluntary. Make sure you don't miss that. This giving was voluntary. No one was forcing. No one was commanding. God didn't command them. The apostles didn't command them. This was something that they were moved, and they did voluntarily because they wanted to. Once again, this passage is not commanding us to sell our properties or possessions. What it is saying is, you know what? If God moves you to give, you have a choice. You're not being forced to. You're not being, you know, you could just follow what God's doing, and that is what these believers did. And when we do give, God wants us to do it with the right heart. Not grudgingly, but because we want to. You know, a great passage of Scripture on giving is 2 Corinthians 9, 7. It says, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God wants you to be cheerful. He wants you to be happy as you give to him or give to others. That's the heart that he wants us to have. Now, I do want to throw out something that, unfortunately, this generosity of the early church did become abused over time. Right now, you look at this and you think, oh, how great. Look at them meeting each other's need. That would be the perfect scenario if we could just have that. How wonderful. And that would be if it could work out that way. How wonderful. But the reality is when you start giving out free money, and free resources to people in need, there are those who are not in need who take advantage of that. They claim they're in need. They claim that they can't get money on their own, even when that's not the case. And we see that later on in Acts. We also see that through the epistles. And so Paul several times had to write, you know what? There's got to be qualifications for someone who truly is in need that the church should support. Because not everyone who calls themselves needy is needy. Not everyone who comes for money should get it. Uh, And so Paul kind of lays that out so that there's discernment in doing that. But um, so... Don't just leave this with, oh, man, we should just give to everyone. Well, there is discernment in how you should do that. But definitely when there's those in need, we as the church should have a heart to reach and meet the needs of those around us, especially those who are believers in Christ. And so the early church is being very generous. And one of the ways they're demonstrating this great generosity is they're selling their properties and they're taking the money and they're giving it to the apostles. Now, in verse 36 Luke tells us the name of one of the people who sold their property and gave all the money. The man's name was Joseph, and you probably don't have any recollection of that name because they changed his name, and they called him Barnabas. This is the same Barnabas that goes on several missionary journeys with Paul. We're going to see a lot of him later on in the book of Acts. We see him in the epistles as well. And notice the translation of his name. They gave him this new name, and it means son of encouragement. 
You see, when he sells all that he has and he gives all the money to the apostles, they're so blown away by this act of generosity, kindness, and love. They say, you know what? We're changing your name. You're no longer going to be Joseph. You're going to be Barnabas because you just brought so much encouragement to us as the early church. You know, and Peter, he had his name changed. Remember, he was Simon, sifting sand, and the Lord said, now you're going to be Peter the Rock. You know, Jesus changed people's names as well. Saul goes to Paul, but now we have this man go from Joseph to Barnabas. And, and it's significant in that culture because in our culture today, man, we just give people names because we like the sound of it, we like the look of it, we don't really have much meaning behind it. But in the Jewish culture, you would name someone something because of the meaning of the name. The meaning of the name was quite significant. And so having your name changed with the new meaning would have been very honorable and privileged for Joseph to now have this great name Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement for what he did. So these believers, that they see this great response from the apostles to this man who gave this. And I want you to note the response. I want you to note the honor and respect they show him. Because now as we come to chapter 5, we're going to see two people who saw the response that the, the church gave to Joseph, who's now Barnabas. And it's going to cause them to do something very unfortunate. God's doing a great work in the hearts and lives of these believers. There's great unity. There's great power. There's great grace. There's great giving. And as we already noted... When God's doing great things, Satan wants to come and do a work to destroy that. And we're going to see that work happen here at the start of chapter 5. No longer is it going to come from the outside. Now Satan is going to try to work from inside the body of Christ. Chapter 5, starting in verse 1, says this. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. And he kept part back of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and bought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, they see this great outpouring of respect and honor to Joseph, who's now Barnabas, and they're thinking, wow, this is great. We'd love to have that. And so they go and they sell their property. And they sell their property, and then they give only a portion of the money to the apostles. But the important thing to note here is that they wanted the apostles and the rest of the church to think that they gave it all. They're claiming, oh, we gave it all, but actually they didn't. They only gave a portion of what they got. And they did this because they wanted the same kind of respect, the same kind of admiration that Joseph got. It's like, oh, look at how the church responded to him because he gave everything. Well, we're going to claim that we gave everything as well. We don't really want to give everything. We're going to keep some for ourselves, but we want everyone to think that we gave everything so that we can have this great response. Well, I'm sure they're probably thinking, man, what kind of name are we going to get? What kind of stuff's going to happen as we come and we lay this down? But notice what happens. As, as they give this money to the apostles, the Holy Spirit moves. And he gives this word of wisdom to Peter. Peter understands supernaturally what they've done. This is a spiritual gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 calls it the word of knowledge. It's when the Holy Spirit gives you knowledge of something that you would have never known before. And so Peter gets this. He gets this supernatural knowledge. He had no clue of the deceptive plot with Ananias and Sapphira. He didn't have some spy, you know, spying on them. The Holy Spirit knew what had happened, and he tells Peter. And Peter then tells them of this reality. 
he realizes you guys are just claiming you gave all the money from selling your property, but you kept some of it back for yourself. Notice what Peter says to them. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Something important to understand here, very important, is that Ananias and Sapphira's sin was not that they kept back part of the money. That wasn't the sin. A lot of people read this and think, oh, they were just greedy, and this is the sin. That's not the sin at all. That wasn't the problem. They weren't required to sell their property and give the money to the apostles. And even when they did sell the property, they didn't, weren't required to give all of it. They could have given a portion of it. They could have given you know, half of it, whatever they chose. If they would have sold their property for $100,000 and they would have given 50000 to the apostles and just said, hey, here's 50000 of what we sold. We didn't give you all of it. We gave 50000 That would have been a huge blessing, a huge gift, and it would have been a wonderful thing. So it wasn't that they kept half of it for themselves. That was the issue. The issue here is that they are lying and hypocritical. They're claiming that they gave it all when really they didn't. That's the real problem. It wasn't that they kept back some of it for themselves because they weren't required to give any of it. It's the fact that they wanted to be seen as these super giving spiritual people when in all reality that wasn't the case. They wanted to be seen as more spiritual than they really were. So they lie. They, give, they claim they give everything, but they don't. You know, the Greek word translated hypocrisy is really referring to an actor who puts on a mask. And in the Greek culture, you had these actors, and they'd hold up a different mask, and they'd play a different part, and then they'd put that down, and they'd pick up another mask and play a different part. And they were just constantly playing different parts, and that's what this word hypocrisy comes from, of you're just trying to be seen as something that you're not. And that's what Ananias and Sapphira were. They were just kind of putting on this mask of, look at how spiritual we are. Look at, we're giving everything to you. But the reality was, that wasn't true at all. Spiritual hypocrisy is when we lie to people in such a way as to make them think we're more spiritual than we really are. George MacDonald, a great preacher, said this, Half the misery in the world is caused by people trying to look rather than trying to be what one is not. Spiritual hypocrisy is a big problem in the world today. People trying to look like something they're not instead of just seeking to be spiritual. You know, just put the effort into being spiritual instead of the effort in trying to look spiritual, and the church world would be so much better off. Now, something I think is important to understand about spiritual hypocrisy. You know, a lot of uh, non-Christians will say, you Christians are so hypocritical because you don't do everything the Bible says. Well, that's really not hypocrisy. Because as Christians, we don't claim to be able to do everything the Bible says. It would only be hypocritical if we stood up and said, we keep every law that the Bible says. We are just perfect people. We do everything. Now, there are some who claim that, and so I guess it's hypocrisy for them. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible is clear. We can never live up to God's perfect standard. That's why we needed Jesus to do it for us. That's our main message. We can't do it. That's why Jesus had to do it, and that's why we believe in him. So it's not hypocritical for us to say, you know what? We blew it. We didn't live up to this perfect standard because the Bible says we can't. And so when people say, oh, you Christians are just hypocritical because you don't do everything perfectly like the Bible says, you well, well, it's not actually hypocrisy because I don't claim that we do. The Bible doesn't claim that we do. We're saved by grace. We're saved because Jesus did it on our behalf. So that is not spiritual hypocrisy. Spiritual hypocrisy is not falling short of God's perfect standard, but it is spiritual hypocrisy when we want to be seen as something that we're not. When we want to try to put on this show to make ourselves look more spiritual than we actually are. And when it comes to spiritual hypocrisy, the heart motive 
is the key. If Ananias and Sapphira, they sold their, their property, they got the money, and they came to the apostles, and they said, you know, we want to give you half. That would have been great. But their sin was this evil motive in their heart that decided to lie, to make others think that they were more spiritual than they were by claiming that they gave it all when they really didn't. You see, they were motivated by love of self, not by love of God or love of others. But they wanted everyone to think, oh, we're motivated by love of God and love of others. We gave it all. We didn't keep anything for ourselves. Look at how selfless we are. Look at how giving we are. That's how they wanted to be perceived, but that is not truly how they were. Hypocrisy also focuses on what people think, not on what God thinks. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, they saw what happened with Joseph. They saw the admiration. They wanted that. Man, we want people to think that way of us. And so here, here's the plan. We'll sell this. We'll keep some of it. We won't tell anyone. What we do give, we'll claim that it's everything. And look at the admiration that we'll get from people. Look at how great it will be. But the person they forgot to think about, the one that you can never deceive, is God. You know, we can deceive people. We can make them think we're spiritual when we're not. We can make them think we're doing way better than we really are spiritually. But the one we will never deceive is God. He knows exactly how spiritual you are. He knows exactly what you're struggling with. He knows exactly what's going on in your life. And so that should be the person that we're focused on, that we're concerned with. But unfortunately for Ananias and Sapphira, they were just kind of focused on the people around them and what they would think. But God, he reveals the issues that are here. You know, when it comes to spiritual hypocrisy, I think a good question to ask yourself is, do you act different at church than you do the rest of the week? Here on Sunday, are you a different person spiritually than you are the rest of the week? If I were to put a GoPro camera on you, maybe some cameras in your house, camera in your car, camera at your work, camera at school, camera wherever you go, and I was just to film you all week long, and then next Sunday I was going to take that footage and put it up on the screen and show everybody your week, would what we see on this screen be different than what we see about you on Sunday? Would we recognize that person or would we think, that's not the person that comes to church here? I mean, look at them. They're completely different. Or would it be, oh, yeah, that's so-and-so. They act completely the same on Sunday as they do the rest of the week. If you're thinking right now, I wouldn't want my uh, video up there on the screen next Sunday, well, it's probably because you're putting on a show. It's probably because here on Sunday you're, you're wanting people to be thinking that you're something that you're really not, thinking that you're real spiritual when the reality is that's not the case. You see, God wants us to be real. First and foremost, with him, because (laughs) what's the point of trying to not be real with him? He already knows what's going on. But he also wants us to be real with one another. Oh, how you doing? I'm doing great. When the reality is a lot of times that's not true. You know, and we need to be open and real. Yeah, I'm struggling. Yeah, I need prayer. Be real with God and confess your issues and be real with others and say, you know what? I really could use some encouragement. I really could use some prayer. Now, with saying that, this is where love for each other is so important. As a pastor, one of the things I've seen so much, one of the things that hinders people from being real, hinders people from being open, hinders people from sharing about problems they have is the fact that they're worried that the response they're going to get is going to be quite negative. They're not going to get people who are loving. They're not going to get people who are responding with just wanting to pray for them and encourage them that they're just going to be judged and all these different things are going to be happening. And so when people get real with you, you need to demonstrate love to them or that's just not going to continue. They're not going to continue to want to open up if you respond in a negative way. So when people are struggling and people want to share that, pray for them, encourage them. You know, spiritual hypocrisy, I think, is something that all of us struggle with at some level 
Some, you know, we really want to be seen very far from what we are. But I think in us all, we want to be seen for something better than we are. It's not just spiritually. It's in every area. We, we want people to look at us and, and think that we're better than we really are. We put on that show oftentimes. And so this is something that we have to be very cautious of. You know, I want you to think about the group of people that Jesus had the biggest issue with. It was the Pharisees. And you know the thing that he kept bringing against them as one of the big accusations that they had? You guys are hypocrites. Over and over again, you guys are hypocrites. You want to be seen as these great spiritual guys, but you're not. And that was something that Jesus really infuriated him. He did things and said things against them that he did to no one else. I'm talking about people who are in adultery, people who are all these other things. He doesn't respond to them nearly as harshly as he does to those who were claiming to be these godly leaders. And the reality was they were very far from God. God hates spiritual hypocrisy. And because of that, Satan loves to attack us with it because he knows that it brings great problems within the church. It brings great issues that are there. So God is doing this great work. There's all this giving. There's all this unity. There's this power, this work of God that's moving. And then Satan moves in the lives of Ananias and Sapphira, and they choose to be spiritual hypocrites. But you know what? I want you to note that God does not allow their spiritual hypocrisy to go unnoticed. They thought no one knew. Hey, we just, in our own little private time, we had our little plan. No one knows. We didn't tell anyone. Ananias, you're not going to say. Sapphira, you're not going to say. Good. No one's going to find out. They come. They lay it down. How in the world does Peter know? Because God knew. And the Holy Spirit reveals it. They couldn't deceive God. That was one big mistake that they made. Verse 3, Peter says to them, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Then in verse 4, he says, Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Notice that Peter could say Satan has filled the heart of Ananias, but he could also ask Ananias, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? And here's the thing. Satan can tempt us. He can try to impact us. He can try to influence us. But as believers in Christ, he cannot force us to do any type of sin. He definitely tempted Ananias and Sapphira. He definitely moved against them. He definitely did his dirty work to try to draw them into the spiritual hypocrisy. But at the end of the day, it was a choice that they made to do this. He couldn't force them to do it. It was something that they had to willingly choose for themselves, and they are very much guilty before God because of it. And the same is true for us. Satan can encourage us to sin. He can tempt us to sin. He can deceive us to sin. But at the end of the day, he cannot force us to sin. That is something that we willingly choose. The whole Satan made me do it is not actually true. Yeah, he, he encouraged me to do it. He tempted me to do it. But at the end of the day, I made a choice to do it because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I now have the power to resist him. I just chose not to. So we can't use that excuse of, well, yeah, Satan's the only one at fault here. When I, you and I sin, it's because we make that choice just like Ananias and Sapphira did. Peter reveals something else important. This lie from Ananias and Sapphira was ultimately against God. Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? You haven't lied to men, but to God. Yeah, they probably just thought, well, this is just a lie to the church. What's the big deal? Peter brings it. No, no, it's much bigger than that. Ultimately, the lie is to the Holy Spirit. The lie is to God. And in all of our sin, ultimately our sin is against God, and we need to recognize that reality. Well, Ananias is caught in his sin, and I want you to note what happens because of this lying hypocrisy, verses 5 through 10. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things, and the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. 
Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down dead at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, carried her out, and buried her by her husband. So right after Peter reveals the spiritual hypocrisy, why have you done this, Ananias? You haven't just lied to God, to man, you've lied to God. Why have you done this? And then notice what happens. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit kills him. Three hours later, his wife comes in, Sapphira. Peter poses a question to her, gives her an opportunity to come clean. Did you sell your property for this much, the amount that you're claiming that you gave us? She had the opportunity to say, well, actually, no, we didn't. We sold it for this much, and we claimed it, and I'm really sorry. Oh, yeah, that's how much we sold it for. And then he responds like he did to her. How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And then she dies. The Holy Spirit kills her. Now, the death of Ananias and Sapphira seems like quite a harsh punishment from God. And the reason it seems like that is because it is quite a harsh punishment from God. I'm very grateful that God does not deal with spiritual hypocrisy in this way anymore. If he did, there'd be a lot of dead Christians. Probably a lot of us today would not make it through this service. This is only the only place really in the New Testament where we see God dealing with spiritual hypocrisy in such a harsh and matter-of-fact way. And since this is the only place we see God dealing with spiritual hypocrisy and in such a harsh way, we have to ask ourselves, what's unique about this? Why does he deal with it like this here, and everywhere else he seems to be much more lenient in the way in which he deals with it? Well, I think we need to see this harsh punishment in the context of the time it was done. Understand, the church is in its infant state, literally days old, very, very uh, vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. And this kind of sin, this spiritual hypocrisy, could have corrupted the church at its core. You know what someone who becomes a big leader in the church? Barnabas. After he gives this, after they name him son of encouragement, he's someone who goes on all these missionary uh, trips. He's someone who has this large leadership role in the church. Guess what? Ananias and Sapphira would probably follow suit with that. Oh, look at you guys. You're so great. They probably would have put them in this great leadership in the church, but yet they were spiritual hypocrites. And imagine the kind of damage that Satan could have done through them if they were given that kind of leadership. And God recognizes the issues that they could have brought to this infant church that was so vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. And God just takes care of that whole situation right there and takes their life. Well, after God does this, We see one more thing that was great that he did in the early church. And maybe you won't think of this as the typical great thing, but it's very important to have in the church. Verse 11 says this, So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. When the believers hear, hey, Ananias and Sapphira, they claim that they did this, they really didn't, they were lying, they were hypocritical, and the Holy Spirit just killed them. All of a sudden there's great fear that comes upon the church. This fear, this reverential fear of God and his power, and also a fear of the consequences of sin. And that's probably an understatement of the kind of fear that was brought there. But you know what? This is a healthy thing for the church to have. It's healthy to have this reverential fear of God, this recognition that that God's not just my buddy. He's not just my father. He is the holy, all-powerful God, and we should have that kind of reverential fear of him. 
You know, I had that for my dad growing up, and I was also fearful of doing things that he told me not to because I knew there was consequences that were going to come to me if I did that. The Bible says the Lord disciplines those he loves. We should have that reverential fear of God to recognize he loves you too much to just allow you to sin and continue to get away with it. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Oftentimes, we're the foolish one. We don't want the instruction from God. We don't want the correction of God. We, we just want to be able to do what we're doing. And the Bible says, no, the fear of the Lord is that beginning of knowledge. When we get to that place where we have that reverential fear of God and also the fear of the consequences of our sin, that is a healthy thing for us as believers to have. And we see now, as we're going to be moving forward in this book of Acts, that that, that fear is a good thing. Because the enemy's trying to get in, and they, they're, they're not so, well, you know what, who cares if we just sin in this way, or who cares if we just do these things like Ananias and Sapphira did? They have this check of, wait a second, we shouldn't do that. Not just, oh, I'm fearful that I'm going to be killed, but there are consequences that come from our sin, and it should bring this reverential, healthy fear into our life. So God has done five great things in the early church. There's great unity. There's great power, great grace, great giving great fear. And as Satan saw these great things that God was doing, he attacks. First, he attacks like a roaring lion. I'm going to destroy the leadership. If I can destroy Peter and John, keep them from sharing the gospel anymore, there'll be a knock-on effect, and you know, we'll have this huge impact on the church. It'll be great. It doesn't work. Okay, well, we'll try something new. I'm going to go in after these young believers. Hey, they've only been saved for a few days. They don't know any better. I'm going to get them to be spiritual hypocrites. And he's successful, and they do. And he's like, oh, I got this huge inroad now. Let's just see what takes place. And God protects the church, deals with that situation so that Satan cannot continue with that inroad that he got. And now he's been successful in one area, hasn't been successful in another. But as we're going to see through the book of Acts, he's just going to continue to attack. He's going to use different ways, different avenues. And unfortunately, he'll be successful a lot, just like he is in your life and in mine. Satan wants to destroy the church. He wants to destroy us as individuals, and we have to be aware of that. We have to recognize that. That's why Paul says, put on the armor of God. Make sure you recognize you're in a spiritual battle. And one of the areas that I think we are guilty of that we need to be careful of, as we see here with Ananias and Sapphira, is this spiritual hypocrisy. Don't fall into this lie to try to pretend like you're something you're not. Let's be real. Let's be real with one another. Let's pray for one another. Let's encourage one another. Let's deal with these issues together. And you know what you find when you start opening up? Oh, I'm not the only one going through this. That's one of the biggest lies of the enemy. You're the only one struggling with this. You're the only one who sins in this way. You're the only horrible person. And then you start sharing, oh, yeah, I deal with that too. Oh, yes, I've dealt with that, and here's how the Lord helped me overcome it. And you can get encouragement, and you can get built up when you do that. Colson, can you come on up and... You're ready to lead us in worship. You know, one of the things that unified the early church as we looked in Acts 2.42, four things that they continued steadfastly to do, and one of them was communion. And, you know, we saw this unity, this, this unity that was ultimately because they were centered on Jesus. He was the focus. He was the reason. And so this morning, one of the things I think that does bring a unity to us as believers is as we together remember Jesus, as we together focus on what Jesus has done for us. And so we're going to do that this morning. The elements are going to be passed out as Colson leads us in a song. And uh, I just want to encourage you, this is an open communion for anyone who has made a decision to accept Jesus Christ. If you have not made that decision yet, I would encourage you to just let the communion elements pass, uh, and we will uh, just take it um, 
in a moment. So just hold on to those elements. Uh, I'll come back up, and uh, we will take it together. So let's just take a time to just focus on the Lord, remember what he's done for us. And if there's sin in your life that you haven't confessed to him, uh, I encourage you to get right with him right now. <laughs> 